si escuchas Crazy es muy loco, ¿ok? Gente. Welcome everyone, you're listening to KUCR here on 88.3 FM, also streaming online at KUCR.org. This is Daniel with the D-Report. Today we'll get an opportunity to speak with historian Gabe Flores about the history of school segregation, specifically here in the U.S. Southwest, of the schools that were to be known as the Mexican schools, as well as the cases challenging the racial boundaries in education. Gabe, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Gabe Flores. I'm a Ph.D. student in the Department of History at UC Riverside. Um, I study the Mendez versus Westminster case, which is a case that took place in Orange County, California in 1947. It's a school desegregation case for Mexican-Americans. I'm particularly interested in looking at the case and how the case is remembered, uh, how the history of that case is produced. I have a genuine sort of interest uh, to sort of examine the convergence of history and memory and how that case is remembered. So a lot of that sort of began uh, with my own educational experiences and that of my father, who is a Mexican immigrant, and learning about some of the uh, mistreatment and sort of experiences that he experienced growing up in the 1960s. And then uh, when I attended community college, this sort of came together uh, in a class that I took where I was introduced to Sylvia Mendez, one of the mm-hmm. children of the plaintiff of the Mendez versus Westminster case. And I got to know that history rather well. And for me, it was a very defining moment because um, history for me at that point had always been you know, basically uh, stories of dead white men and uh, people of power, um, distant places, distant lands, distant times. And this was something that was very tangible to me, something that took place um, in my own backyard. I had grown up in Orange County, California, had never heard of the case. And so that really sparked my interest in history and education, and that sort of led me to where I am today. Gabe, okay, well, thank you for sharing uh, that context. I'm really interested in, in getting an opportunity to talk to you about education, my own work, Uh, in the field of anthropology is centered around education. I also received my, I guess, my formative education here in um, Southern California and LA specifically. And eventually I was a teacher myself. And after that, entered graduate school. So the field of education is a field that um, I think like you, uh, that we know very well, both as people that have experienced the classroom, you know, as students, the countless hours in those settings, but eventually we move on, and uh, some of us had opportunity to become researchers on this topic, as well as educators. And that's the context that I was hoping we could kind of um, talk about. I'm really interested in, in your concept of, of memory, the way we think about information, the way that we kind of bring that information forward. You mentioned that you first came into this subject as a student, you know, thinking about the the Mendes case, which is a formative case in the field of education. We, a lot of us think about Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. But the Westminster case is a fundamental case in the sense that it actually leads to Brown versus Board of Education. A lot of the arguments were almost like first practice there and then taken to the Brown versus Board of Education. And specifically in the issue of like, what does it mean to have separate schooling, separate education patterns? And how does that in itself create this unequal status? Can you tell us a little bit yeah. more context about this case? I think if we go back to the uh, mid-19th century, we look at the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, um, which essentially the United States annexes uh, what is today the American Southwest. And um, under this new system of governance, Mexicans are afforded 
the sort of privileges, the accoutrements of, of whiteness, so to speak. They're allowed to maintain their property. Um, their children are allowed to attend schools and have certain sort of, you know, economic, social and political privileges. But over time, that begins to shift, uh, particularly as more and more Anglo settlers begin to come into California. And so uh, thus begins, you know, um, ways for these uh, Anglo populations to, quote unquote, deal with uh, a Mexican problem, right? The influx of, of folks who don't speak their language and in their views don't necessarily um, assimilate or accommodate to, to the larger culture. And so we start to see these patterns begin where local groups, um, local school boards, local communities uh, begin to enact sort of segregationist policies within local public schools. So it's quite different from um, if we look at the African-American experience in education, per se, um, where there is a codified and sort of you know, legal um, what we call de jure segregation, right, which is codified by the law. And in California, while there are laws for, quote, Mongolians, quote, Negroes, um, as well as, quote, Indians, there are no laws for Mexicans. So it's really an interesting and sort of peculiar case that it becomes very sort of regional and localized where we start to see this segregation uh, begin to take place. And so that, to me, going back to your first point, as a student, right, as someone who was learning about this history for the first time, again, this was something that, that really surprised me because I think that we tend to tell the history of race and, and racial segregation in schools um, in the United States through a particular lens of black versus white, um, north versus south. Often excluded from that conversation is the Southwest, California included. And so people tend to think of the West, um, particularly now in our sort of modern political framing, as this sort of bastion of liberalism, right? It's very left-leaning, very progressive, et cetera. But that hasn't always been the case. And we could even come back to this later because California still today is the most segregated state with respect to Mexican-Americans slash Latinos in the schools. So uh, Mendez is a, is a very important case, part of a larger uh, legacy, right, of, of Mexican-Americans challenging um, this practice of, of segregation. Um, beginning in the 1930s um, in Texas, uh, there's a case, Independent School District versus uh, Salvatierra, uh, which is... Um, 1930, there's Alvarez versus Owen, which is commonly known as the Lemon Grove incident, which takes place in the San Diego area here in 1931. Of course, Mendez versus Westminster. And then there's uh, Gonzalez versus Sheely in Arizona, Cisneros versus Corpus Christi in 1970, and then a Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court case, Keys versus School District Number 1, which is out of Denver, Colorado, uh, which are all part of these sort of larger movements. So uh, Mendez is important. It's important for us to sort of look at that case as, as an important time, an important event in the history of inclusion and sort of omitting um, sort of segregatory practices on the scale that they were taking place on. But unfortunately, there's been a lot of pushback um, from these Anglo communities and, you know, economic, social, as well as, you know, cultural, um, you know, push and pull factors that eventually lead to situations that we have today. We noticed this uh, legal history of really trying to think about uh, how to untangle or undo these practices. Segregation is very much part of the American narrative. It's difficult because we have a current, yeah, very kind of shallow memory and maybe that's our own safety valve as people so that I think of myself as a student in LA Unified School District. And the idea of, for example, racial segregation, I remember seeing it in my classroom, you know, maybe it was like uh, in celebration of 
Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, work, and then you would see these black and white images, and you're like, wow, that was back then. But when and when I would say that was back then, in my young mind, it well, it might as well be another thousand years ago. You know, it, it was something so far away from where I was, but yet it is very shallow. I mean, it really it w- was just a generation ahead of me or behind me. And when I think about where we are in education, uh, discourse or analysis, we see the conversation as a long one where people keep wanting to talk about education reform. And one of the key topics has been the issue of segregation. And we've been working with these models of thinking about how to address them legally, economically, socially. But one of the things I want to bring back is trying to think about this Mendes case and Give me your thoughts on this multiple forms of meaning because though this is a legal case, what are your thoughts on how this is also a cultural, social, economic context in the sense that how it ripples or has effect for the community? I think it goes back to the point that I was speaking to earlier about the sort of uh, treatment of Mexicans after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, right, where Mexicans, um, essentially Californios, I can speak more specifically about the California context, uh, Californios who are an elite class of citizens um, were incorporated in many ways into the dominant, you know, Anglo-American society. Um, but over time, those, uh, those privileges began to be revoked as more and more settlers began to move into the, to the area, of course. So uh, there becomes a competition for resources. And so education becomes sort of inextricably linked, right, to things like housing discrimination, uh, miscegenation laws, anti-miscegenation laws, for instance, uh, restricted covenants in housing, right? So all of these things are sort of interconnected and part and parcel of a sort of larger pattern of exploitation and subordination, right, um, after this treaty. So at first, things seem to be going along well, but over time, we start to see this shift in attitudes. Um, as well as, you know, sort of general attitudes about Mexicans, right? So the prevailing attitude um, about Mexicans in the late 19th and early 20th century is one that, you know, they're, they're diligent, sort of hardworking uh, people who, who quote-unquote, know their place, right? And so that that's keeps a particular group in line, so they're not necessarily, uh, in, the, in the eyes of the dominant group, sort of bumping up against any of those, those racial boundaries. But as people begin to sort of push back, uh, we see that, uh, you know, there are, are ways in which uh, the larger white Anglo community begins to sort of find ways in the, in the case of the school districts, racial covenants, et cetera, right, to sort of find localized ways um, to begin to um, subordinate this group and sort of continue. And so we think about, you know, if Mexican-Americans, for instance, are viewed uh, later on as becoming uh, more sort of indolent, they're unhygienic. They're not necessarily uh, in the right religious group because they're Catholic and they're not necessarily, you know, Calvinist or Protestant uh, Christians, right? So there become all these different ways in which Mexicans become othered. And this is part of the justification that we see in a lot of the documents, uh, school board meeting notes and, uh, you know, the, the sort of transcripts from the different cases and stuff. This seems to be the, the prevailing attitude uh, with the, the, the narrative often that these students are, quote, handicapped by their lack of the English language. 
And there's many, many instances that have disproven that, that many of these students spoke English very well. As we know from, you know, for those of us who might be uh, immigrants and have immigrant parents, right, and sort of, you know, working through that second and third generation model, oftentimes those second and third generations are, are very much assimilated to, to both worlds, right? They have their foot in sort of both of those worlds. And so it's very interesting how these arguments, you know, were, were created and in often ways, uh, you know, replicated even today, right, with the rhetoric of, uh, you know, anti-immigration and Mexicans as rapists and dirty, et cetera, et cetera. So we see this sort of continuation, right? Now, Mark Twain often, you know, misattributed, but uh, this is probably something close to what he said. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And it's a, it's a much more complicated statement that he makes. But I think that the essence is true in that, you know, history doesn't necessarily fall in line and we don't see the exact same things happening. But there are similarities and there are patterns. And I think as historians, that's something that we try to uncover and try to present. I think especially those of us who have a, a public orientation uh, want to address that and get that work out to the public. Well, it's important to really try and organize our, our, our sense of memory. Because when I, um, when I address this material, specifically the issue of schooling and the history of segregation, I find it interesting that depending on what context I'm placed in, the conversation skews a little bit. In particular, right now, I'm, I'm thinking of the ways that you mentioned the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and that treaty comes about as a result of the Mexican-American War, 1848. And then that treaty is an assurance of how the people that are going to be within the new territory or the new classified territory at that point, uh, the question is what's well, going to happen to the people. And under that treaty, there's, I believe, a, a one-year period that you, you can go to Mexico or to the territories that are still part of Mexico, but if you stay in California, you're going to become an American citizen. And within that arrangement, as you reference. As an American citizen, you're going to be able to access all of the rights and opportunities of that status. However, we know that in that period, by the 1850s, those access of legal Americanness are not available to everyone. It's mainly cast within this white status. And I think there we can see the emergence of this community that we call the Mexicans or the Californians, but more probably the Mexican-Americans, the Mexican population, recast legally as white. And at that point, I'm also curious to the way that you reference something that is uniquely different from the racialized segregation of the Eastern South, for example, where the Black Code specifically say, you know, you're being segregated because you're not white, and this is what we do with the black status. In California, we have these different legal markers. And I think the question is that for, for this entry that comes from the East to the West and brings with it its own racialized templates of stereotypes of non-whiteness, it's going to struggle to figure out how to appropriate that or import that or impose that onto the Mexican population that stays in California. And as you reference this history, it is awkward to see how at the very beginning, the people have access to their land, have access to some semblance of 
equal participation within the social scaffold so that if you are a person in California, you're not immediately going to be relegated to the to the labor of the fields. You still may be able to be a store shop owner or e-doctor, these different places within society. But eventually through time, the as you mentioned, the importation of more and more white settlers, they'll bring it with them a lot of that stigma and stereotyping that they've learned from the East and try and give it to the Mexican population. And I think that's where it gets complicated for me because on paper, the Mexican population is codified as white and yet they're being segregated into these quote-unquote non-white schools. How do you make sense of that contradiction or, or is it a contradiction at all for you? The contradiction really lies within the these sort of courts and the the folks, the settlers who are coming in during that time. So a lot of these court cases that I had mentioned previously rely on what I would call in, in air quotes, right, common sense uh, knowledge, right? So the judges and other folks who are involved in making these decisions are often using what they consider to be common sense. And so a lot of this common sense is based off of these sort of racial uh, assumptions that have come with them from the East, and right? So they're bringing these these sort of notions with them. Um, and whether or not they necessarily equate blackness to brownness, it becomes othered in ways because, like I mentioned, right, with the competition for resources and things like that with elite Californios, um, you have this sort of um, interesting contradiction, as you mentioned, right, where, you know, yes, on paper, they're, they're legally white, but in these sort of public sphere, right, in these sort of cultural context, they're othered and they are not white. And so it's fine, well, as long as, you know, folks are sort of fulfilling their, quote, uh, you know, societal obligations in the case of Mexicans, you know, being, quote, good laborers um, and sort of working the fields and, and knowing their place within society. So it's, it's really interesting because the California context, the Southwestern context is, is very different because the laws themselves do not necessarily codify or justify the treatment that's going on. A lot of it is based off of sort of local customs, uh, local attitudes, and sort of prevailing attitudes. And so it's very interesting that the treatment of Mexican-Americans in California varies from region to region. So if you're in an area that is predominantly uh, agricultural, uh, you're likely to see the existence of Mexican schools, for instance. But in areas where you might be one of two or three Mexican families that reside in the larger community, you're not going to see the, the existence of those schools because there's not a, quote, need for them. So it is really fascinating how they, they use this, 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 quote, common sense to, you know, basically impart these, these sort of racial ideologies. But I would even take it a step further in looking at 1848 uh, as also a moment not just of war and annexation, but also one of colonization. And so it's a very complicated narrative in that, you know, Mexicans themselves being mestizos, right, are, are, are part uh, European, they're part indigenous, part African. And so there's these really interesting ways in which, um, you know, those folks being deemed white is sort of interesting in and of itself. Um, but you know, it was an attempt, I think, to, to try to include who, those who were perceived at least as elite, right, who could sort of drive the economy. So, again, it's, it's a matter of necessity. So while these Mexican elites were, quote, needed, they were allowed to sort of stick around and maintain their power. But as more settlers came in and the, the needs shifted, uh, we start to see these changes in attitudes and we start to see these policies enacted at the local level. When we think about this moment of racializing a community, it's important to really, I think, reference the, the racial boundaries that you referenced earlier. 
as these moments of fiction, because what we see, for example, in this early period of the United States, if we go back to the 13 colonies, is this period of creating whiteness and then whiteness as power and then whiteness as exclusion so that we have indentured servants that we would, to use your reference of common sense, knowledge of racial assumptions, would code as white. You know, they may have blonde hair, blue eyes, but they're working the fields and they are not granted whiteness. So that I think whiteness at that point is is granted much more through the idea of land ownership and your position in the society as a power holder. And then when we think of blackness and its emergence, its creation through the slave trade, where we have people, you know, that are not black until they become coded by our legal structure and our economic structure and society that is going to segregate them into this code of blackness. And as we enter the West Coast, I think that is the question that I've been struggling with, that like for the East Coast white vision, Mexicans are a troubling spot because the assumption is that they're not black, they're not white, they could be native. By 1848, Mexico has has only about like 27 years as a nation state. So the question is like, what is the discourse that whiteness has of the other and the other here being the Mexican template, but the Mexican not as the Mexican within like the south of what now is Mexico, like Veracruz and Chiapas. It's thinking about the Mexican in the U.S. Southwest. It's thinking about Texas, uh, Nevada, Arizona, California. And these people are going to be awkwardly difficult for the United States to deal with because they have to accept them as Americans but we understand that up to that point, American means white. And yet, as you, as you mentioned, it will have some assumptions. And I think that's where the, the conversation about school segregations, the Mexican-American schools, uh, has been that they were not legally supported, that this was a de facto segregation. But when you look at the 18, I think it's like 1850, 1857, the California legislature and several schools districts are actively calling on, on this other of blackness and Indianness and even anti-Chinese legislation so that the Mexican population of the Southwest is going to be privy to a different experience than the Mexican population of the territory of or what is left of the annexation within the Mexican territory. So that what I'm trying to think about is this, this troubling puzzle that I think allows us to think about these racial assumptions because what I find difficult is that we kind of think about how we are going to make sense of this legal segregation in the South and this pseudo-legal segregation in the U.S. Southwest. But I'm, I think about it in this way. What if that segregation is an expression of the Americans' assumption of the other, of this racialized new body? Because the Californians, as you mentioned, were a very small sector that I would argue pre-American contact, they are more accurately cast as white. Uh, they, the way they think of themselves in comparison to the native population of the Southwest, they might think of themselves as this like relic of the Spanish colonial settlers, um, thinking about like even going into Nuevo Mexico that kind of really proudly wave those Spanish flags. I'm just thinking about this sense of like, if it is fruitful at all to, to consider the Mexican population that stays within the U.S. Southwest as a puzzle 
for the American slash whiteness that they work through as manifested through their segregation of schooling. You're right. There are distinctions. And if we look more at the history of Mexico itself and we look at, um, you know, the area that is the, the American Southwest today, so far removed from the center, right, from from De Efe, from the, uh, you know, Mexico City, really sort of govern, governing themselves and creating their own sort of sense of identity. So you're right. It does very much sort of complicate because there are very sort of regionalized identities, right, in the sense of Tejanos. Californios, the New Mexicanos, right? So these folks all sort of view themselves, um, yes, as Mexican, but there is an identity, I think, that sort of supersedes that. Uh, and you're right, and it does sort of complicate those things. Um, but I think with respect to, you know, um, whiteness itself, right? I mean, there are other groups that are, quote, white, um, who are, you know, not necessarily welcomed into the fabric of American society, um, and it took it took many, many years, right, for, for those groups, I'm thinking like of, of Italians, Poles, Jews, et cetera, to sort of be incorporated. And I think in some ways you could argue maybe Jews are, are not fully incorporated, but in other ways are um, into that thing we would sort of, you know, call whiteness. So it's, it's interesting to me how, you know, this, this sort of idea uh, of whiteness and of race, right, really does show the sort of the social construction of this ism, which essentially, right, is just sort of fabricated from a, a, basically an economic and sort of political need to maintain power. Um, but also I think entrenched in that, right, is a sort of 19th century, early 20th century um, sort of belief. If you, if you look at, you know, social Darwinism, if you look at the eugenics movement, right, um, it was also ways, I think, to try to find biological differences between those who were white and those who were legally classified as white, but maybe presented otherwise, right? So this also then, I think, gave fuel to justifications for segregation and that you could find biological differences, you know, measuring cranial capacity, average height and weight and things of that nature. And then you could you could categorize and cast people into these sort of groups as others. And then, as I mentioned, the fact that, you know, although Mexicans are, are labeled and, and are seen legally as white, the fact that they speak a, a language other than English and that, uh, you know, due to Spanish colonization, uh, the majority practice Catholicism. These become other ways, I think, that those who are living in what is now the American Southwest, right, um, I think become sort of tangled in that web of colonization and racism. And there, there are ways in which the dominant group uses science and uses, you know, common sense, right, to, to, to justify these types of things. So um, it's a very convoluted and complex sort of nexus, right, when we look at it. But again, I think it helps to sort of think about you know, the ways in which the, the, the larger white community has sort of responded in ways that they continue to try to justify and distinguish those racial differences, right? I think that's what's important. And I think that's how they sort of deal with the sort of um, contradiction, if you will, right, of, of Mexicans in, in Alta Mexico, right? Those who are, are living outside of the sort of center of Mexico and sort of see themselves differently view themselves on par with the Anglo settlers that are coming in because they sort of dominated. And so how do you justify that your group that's newly arrived is sort of better than and has more power? I think, you know, you begin to go through these different sort of scripts and these tropes that position people as other and less than. I'd like to return to something that you mentioned about the justification for the segregation. We see, for example, even to today, I think the statement that 
these schools were necessary because of some type of cultural incompatibility. Uh, you referenced the issue of Spanish and maybe religion, but it, it's encapsulated into this very stereotypical model of an other that is very finitely different from what is expected or appreciated within the American discourse so that the term Spanish as a language that is heard becomes offensive after 1850 because at that point it should be an English-only setup. And then we notice this pattern I'm returning to this East Coast expression. There's this writing from Benjamin Franklin in one of his uh, newspapers in Pennsylvania, and he writes this very strong critique of this community that he's offended exists because they have their own language, they have their own schools and their whole enclaves, and he's really upset. He kind of says they're never going to be us and never going to be Anglos, and he's referencing the German immigrant population. When I access that comment, I can hear it just uh, how it exists throughout history so that that one is written, I believe, in like 1773, 74, like pre-1776 when we think of this marker of creating the nation state of the United States. But I noticed that sentiment of offense. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about the legacy of, of Mendes v. Westminster is that we carry this trope that these schools existed because people were just non-assimilable. Uh, they were just too different. But there's something that is something that doesn't coincide with what we can see. And one of the things that we can see, those of us that spend time studying education, but even more, those of us that have been in the education system in the United States, is that assimilation is really fast. Acculturation even more so. I always think about assimilation as different than acculturation. I think assimilation as like that complete erasing effect where I don't even remember myself and no one can distinguish me. But acculturation is just culturally I can pick up enough where I fit in really well. But one of the things that we keep hearing is that, quote unquote, this Mexican other, which is really a U.S. Southwest version, obviously, um, is going to be unable to make it, unable to assimilate. But surprisingly, when we think about these moments is that the students are speaking English. They are immersed in American culture. As you mentioned earlier, even before this area becomes part of the United States, the Southwest is very much its own character, so much so that I think people would feel that they wouldn't even fit in into the core of Mexico because they just have such a different cultural space here. But I do find it interesting that we continue to talk about these spaces, these Mexican schools or Mexican segregated schools as places that result out of almost the community's own making because they somehow they were too different. Yeah, I mean, I think that it goes back to the point that we were talking about earlier, right? When it comes down, I think, to this aspect of inclusion and exclusion, we have to look not just at the day-to-day interactions, right? Um, but also, I think, the, the sort of deeper culture that, that is sort of involved. And I think that's where uh, you're coming from, right, with this uh, Benjamin Franklin comment, right, that this is something that has sort of been infused, right, and in many ways um, institutionalized in the United States, right? And so 
while there is this sort of common sense, localized sort of regional response and approach, it, it, it is worth saying that um, you know these schools, Mexican schools, I mean, you can even include uh, Chinese schools and Native American boarding schools in this category, right? They're all receiving some level of federal funding. And so there is this way in which, right, this, this sort of racism and this uh, subordination and exploitation uh, does take a a sort of institutional and a very sort of deeply sort of historically entrenched sort of idea, right, that that sort of manifests itself into segregation um, at the school level, at the public, you know, service level with respect to transportation and housing, et cetera. So it, it is very, um, it is very complex, but I think that it's also just part of this larger pattern, right, that, uh, those who do not necessarily look like you, those who don't necessarily speak the same language as you, um, are somehow then a threat to your way of life. And it's important to state, right, this is not the, the attitude of all Anglos, right? But this is unfortunately the attitude of many Anglos who take power um, in the Southwest and in the East. And these are the folks who are writing the policies, right? And these, these are the ways that these things become uh, institutionalized, right? Even as well-intended as some of these, uh, you know, reformers might be, um, who are institutionalizing uh, these practices, right? It's it's to help raise or uplift this particular group. There's still this notion that they're backward or that they're behind. So um, it is very interesting, and then this is why I think it's important to think of it not just through a sort of racial lens, right, but part of a larger sort of colonial lens, a, a colonial matrix, if you will, right, that uh, if we look at the history of colonization and we see the practices of, of European and, uh, you know, in the case of Asia, Japanese, uh, you know, imperialism, uh, we see that these attitudes and these practices are sort of necessary for dominating and attempting to take control of these particular regions. So this is a, a long-practiced, uh, you know, sort of way of operating for the West, uh, and I think it just sort of continues internally, right? When we're incorporating, um, you know, part of another nation into our own nation, there there is sort of, um, you know, intrinsically uh, a difference, right, between us if we if we use nationalism as that divide, and then people who are on the ground, right, common folk, are finding other ways to differentiate, like I said, religion and language, hygiene, etc. So it, it is a very interesting and sort of complicated. Uh, narrative and one that I'm, you know, attempting to sort of unpack in in the dissertation that I'm writing. You referenced that your your work addresses this idea of memory, and when we think of ourselves, I think it does help to consider the ways that we articulate, the way that we verse these recollections. In the United States, it's hard to deal with these issues because we've been. I think we're barely entering a place of feeling that we can comfortably own how much damage uh, has been done to get us where we are today, the cost that we've paid, so that for a long time we wanted to reject how much we've benefited off other people's injury. And when we address this sense of memory, I think that's where we get stuck because a lot of us are barely becoming aware of, as you mentioned, you know how many layers upon layers of, of things we are standing on whether we even acknowledge this area, you know, and we consider this framing of saying, how do you make sense of a war between two nations? And then how do you make sense of the population that stays inside the territory when it's relabeled as another territory? And then what will happen to those people? 
to those people that are not necessarily the same people because it will be years later, but the term will be a placeholder for that. So that when I say Mexican in the Southwest in 2019, it really takes me back to the term Mexican in 1848. And eventually, what will they do with that term once the Americans enter and see that term as a threat, as a reminder of the population that was here comfortably before, or at least was here as a place of comfort within the territory, within the sense of citizenship and so forth. But I think that's where memory to me is something that can be very fruitful because for a lot of our communities, our memory is very deep. Uh, many of us carry memory that take us pre-nation state so that the term Mexican is, is maybe a little bit too shallow. Uh, definitely American is shallow. We might go into this uh, indigeneity as a space where we feel much more comfortable but yet, I think this space of memory is important because, I don't know, I feel that it, it moves something from the intellectual to like the embodiment, the emotional. And I'd be curious if you can offer more thoughts on that sense of memory and, and specifically as you address it within your work. I think that, um, you know, memory is, is important. I think it's important to um, not only uh, as an academic, right, to as a historian especially, right, to dig into the archives and to go through the written, you know, documents of this history. Uh, but equally important, I think, is to gain access to the memories of those folks who have experienced this, uh, this type of discrimination and, and these various, you know, experiences in the educational system. And uh, it's very interesting because we can remember the past um, in ways that are critical. We can also remember the past in ways that um, help us to cope with the present. So there's many sort of complications in looking at memory. For instance, uh, looking at the Mendez case itself, um, there are two siblings that attended, you know, these quote-unquote Mexican public schools and had very, very different uh, experiences and remember them very, very differently. And so it's important for us to, I think, capture those different experiences. Um, one of the siblings remembers this being uh, probably the most horrible experience of her life and recounts uh, many instances of being discriminated against and ostracized and recounts the uh, sort of lack of resources and infrastructure that these schools maintained. And her sibling, who went through the same types of experiences, uh, remembers it very fondly because he made some of his best friends um, in those spaces. And so uh, it's important for us to sort of acknowledge that and I think also acknowledge the agency of people uh, working within these schools, right? Because um, these schools were intended to essentially eliminate and destroy culture. You mentioned assimilation. That was primarily the goal for these schools, right, was to, in a sense, make these Mexican kids, quote unquote, white, uh, anglicize them, right, to American customs, norms, and values. Um, but there were folks within these schools that, uh, you know, chose to um, resist that. And there are folks who chose to embrace that because they felt that that was the key, you know, to survival. And so, I think we can agree and disagree with these um, ways of interacting with the past, but I think we have to respect that people are sort of dealing with these things um, on their own terms and um, through their own experiential and sort of educational lenses. And so uh, when looking at the past and looking at the memories of these schools, right, that's one of the, the complicated things that I'm trying to work through is trying to understand that, you know, not in the sense that, oh, these places weren't as bad as people made them seem, because I do believe that you know these were um, inferior 
and under-resourced and in many ways, um, you know, very much colonial institutions, right, meant to Im impede the progress of a particular population. Um, but there are people who worked within that. And I think of, you know, the example of Native American boarding schools. And I think of, you know, the, 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 main, the maintenance of culture within those spaces. And these boarding schools essentially become, quote, Indian schools, right, places where Native American children are, are learning how to maintain and um, reconnect to their culture. And so there were also these moments within these Mexican schools, right, um, kids getting together to maintain the Spanish language, to share in different types of cultural exchanges and, and, and share that sort of bond in that community. So it's very interesting how, you know, memory uh, helps us to sort of think about the past and complicates the past. But I think uh, uh, going back to this larger, you know, from the personal to the institutional, I think there's also something to this large sort of narrative, what I would call the, the sort of master narrative, right? Or this, what we would call, I guess, a historically progressive narrative, right? That, that tends to uh, imply that the United States has had its woes, but uh, with time and with the efforts of people, its citizens, right, has sort of overcome all of those obstacles. And in that way, with respect to memory, right, I think that that really helps to shape a national memory, a collective memory that says, oh, this stuff, this school segregation, this all is relegated to the past. And America has sort of overcome uh, its, you know, its sort of indifferences with race and, and uh, you know, democracy and egalitarianism has won out over discrimination and racism. And that helps in a lot of ways to serve a larger narrative, right, that, uh, that America is doing its best, essentially, to alleviate these problems when there is actually more evidence to suggest that there's, there's more movement to maintain these structures than there is actually to uh, dismantle these structures. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, I'm, I'm not a sociologist, uh, I'm not a political theorist, I don't really deal with the present, but I think that it's important for others to ask themselves, so, so what does that mean for today? And how is this sort of being manifested in the schools today? And what larger sort of purpose does this serve uh, with respect to maintaining uh, subordinate, you know, population in the United States? Gabe, I want to thank you very much for sharing this conversation with us today. No, the pleasure has been all mine. I appreciate it. You have just finished hearing a conversation with historian Gabe Flores. We talked about the history of school segregation as expressed in the U.S. Southwest, the relationship between the 1848 Mexican-American War, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the entry of East Coast settlement, and the importation of stereotypes and models of Americanness and whiteness as models to make sense of the experience of creating racialized boundaries to education, as evidenced in the creation of these schools that were to be called the Mexican schools. The expression of these racial segregated schools were found to be unconstitutional in the 1947 case Mendes v. Westminster, which paved the way for the 1954 case Brown v. Board of Education. The legal segregation was found to be unconstitutional. Other forms of segregation persisted, which leaves us with the legacy of these racialized divides in education. I want to thank you for tuning into this conversation. I hope you found it of relevance and interest, and hopefully you take it to your respective circles to continue. Please feel free to send me your thoughts, comments, or any questions you may have to the following email, comments at dereport.org, and check out our archive page, 
thereport.org to review past segments. You've been listening to Daniel here on KUCR 88.3 FM, the radio station of UC Riverside. Again, thank you for tuning in. Stay safe, stay strong. Join us again next week.